Hi, I'm Jonathan Mosen. Welcome to episode 51 of Mosen at Large. On the show today, your text to speech engine of choice. Which ones do you like and why? Advice on buying and using a braille display. And we talk about the International Association of Accessibility Professionals. Mosen at Large Podcast. You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. Hello, Jonathan. This is Jason from Virginia. Uh, thank you, first of all, for the show, all the uh, valuable content you provide, a lot of thought-provoking conversation, and uh, sometimes things that cause me to spend money. Um <laughs> One of the things I wanted to ask you about is the uh, Samsung microphone that you've used a number of times, not the lapel mics, but the handheld one. Uh, if you had any suggestion on a uh, desktop uh, mount, I would. I don't have the microphone as of yet. Uh, I've heard you use it a number of times, and I really like the sound quality, but I'd like to get some kind of um, mount that I could connect to the back of my desk and move it out of the way when I need it and pull it towards me when I'm using it. If you have any recommendations or anybody else, that would be greatly appreciated. And the second thing I wanted to talk about was Braille with a capital B. Thank you for bringing that up. I honestly never considered that, but I'm glad you um, brought that up a while ago. And now when I type it, it is properly written. (laughs) The thing I was considering is going to a Braille display. Um, I grew up reading and writing Braille, but as computers came along and I started using them. I had not used Braille in a number of years, not because I didn't see the value in it, but I think often people forget the cost of using Braille nowadays is pretty expensive. Um, At least from what I'm seeing, even the inexpensive displays are somewhat costly, in my opinion, and at least based on the little I've read, seems like the less expensive ones are kind of you get what you pay for type of thing. 
anyway, um, because my job duties have changed where I'm doing some more managerial things, it seems, you know, I've kind of thought that a braille display may be more useful than it w- would have been in the past. And uh, I guess part of the concern I have is, number one, I've actually never seen a braille display before, never used one, and don't even know what UEB looks like um, because it's been so long since I've used braille. Um, <laughs> so I'm not really sure kind of where to go with this, but I see now that, for example, Freedom Scientific is having their convention discounts, and it's very intriguing to see that I could get 20% off of one of their displays. Uh, I guess the first question would be, do you feel that a, was it the 14 cell, I think is their small display, is that uh, practical use for a computer and a mobile phone, or do you find the real estate a bit too limiting? And uh, I guess also I was considering the new um, 40 cell display with the QWERTY keyboard. I apologize, the name does not come to mind right now. I'm sure as soon as I stop this recording it will. But that's another option I've considered because of the fact that I definitely am more used to uh, QWERTY typing, but I don't know what drawbacks that device may have or you know things that I haven't considered. Thanks, Jason. No one likes to miss out on a bargain. Let's open this up and get some views from people on the Braille displays that they like to use and why they use the ones that they do. And I'll start by talking a little bit about Braille displays in general, since you say that you have not seen one. One of the key decisions you will have to make, and you alluded to this in your message, is the size of the Braille display. How many cells do you want to have on your Braille display? And that depends on the way that you read, how often you're going to use it, and what you're going to use it for. The smaller sized Braille displays that come in, say, 14 or even 18 cell configurations are great for when you're on the move and you're texting with a mobile phone. I have a Focus 14 Blue and I do just have it around my neck a lot of the time when I'm traveling with my iPhone. The advantage is that if I need to silently answer a text message and read that text message when it's not appropriate to have the speech going, you know, even if you're wearing earbuds, sometimes it just distracts you to hear that speech when you really need to focus on what's going on. The Braille display is fantastic for that. Just quickly reading a text or a little bit of an email, responding to it in Braille, and then sending it off. If you're going to do a lot more serious reading, if you intend to do a lot of book reading or reading in your job, And also proofreading in the sense that you really want to get a feel for the way that the document is looking, the way it's formatted, then a 40-cell Braille display is worth the effort. There are still carrying cases for some of those displays. The Focus 45th generation that I'm currently using came with a lovely carrying case, and it's got a little zipper pocket at the top where you can put a few things like SD cards or other things like that. It does go around your neck, so it's larger than the 14 but you can actually use it successfully in a portable environment as well. If you are only going to pick one Braille display, for most people, I'd say go for the 40 because you can use it at a pinch with your mobile phone and you can use it for serious proofreading, editing and reading. If you just got the 14 as your only Braille display, then you may find yourself a little bit constrained, a little bit limited by the number of cells that you have access to. 
When making your purchase, there are several other factors that may influence your decision, including the way that the display is laid out. Most Braille displays will have the Braille cells and above each cell, a little button known as a cursor routing key. And that means that if you find a mistake as you read, you can simply tap that key. Your cursor is instantly routed there and you're able to make any corrections that you need to. The Orbit Braille displays, or at least the ones that have been shipping, don't come with cursor routing keys, but I have a feeling the new ones that are coming out might do. There is a patent on the cursor routing technology, so it does inflate the price a little bit. But in my view, a Braille display without cursor routing keys just isn't worth it unless all you want to do is read material. You know, if it's a Braille reader you want, then of course no cursor routing keys is just fine. You also might want to consider the way that the Braille display is laid out. So my personal preference is that I could not, I don't think, be happy with the hymns Q Braille which is a really cool concept with dedicated windows and shift and, and other modifier keys. But where they've put the space bar on that Braille display, it just doesn't suit the way I like to work because I'm feeling like I'm having to tuck my thumb under too often to press the space bar. Similarly, how do you navigate with the display? Some display manufacturers use rocker bars. Some use thumb keys that are programmable. Some have a combination of both. And that's very much a matter of just how you like to work personally, what feels right for you. And if you're a new Braille display user, I think the reality is you'll probably get used to anything in time. Braille displays also have a lot of moving parts with the piezoelectric technology, and I don't think that that's going to fundamentally change over the next little while. So they can break. You've got to make sure that you use your Braille display with clean hands. You will need to clean the display from time to time. But eventually, you're probably going to have to send your Braille display in for servicing. So it's important that you purchase from a manufacturer that is well supported where you are and that, to the best of your knowledge, is in a sound financial state. These things are big investments, and it's pretty unfortunate when the manufacturer of your Braille display goes under. So a brand that's been around a while, that is well supported, that I think is really important. Depending on how you'll be using your device, how noisy it is may be a factor as well. One of the things that I like about the Focus Braille display is that when you scroll it, when you're reading with it, it is fairly quiet. It's not totally silent and it would be very hard to get total silence because all the dots, you know, you, you've got a, a whole 40 cell line. It's refreshing. It's popping up. So there will be some sounds, but some displays are more noisy than others. And depending on your use case, that may or may not be a factor. You might also want to consider how many devices you might like to pair your Braille display with. The Focus 40 Blue 5th generation, and indeed a lot of the Braille displays out there now, can pair with multiple devices. With the Focus 5th generation, you've got USB and six Bluetooth devices. That is quite standard now for many new Braille displays. You'll also need to think about whether you want any built-in functions, and if so, how many in your Braille display, or whether you're happy for the Braille display essentially to be dumb and get its intelligence from whatever device it's connected to. Most of the Braille displays on the market now have some sort of note-taker functionality built in. The Focus, for example, since you mentioned the Vespero 20% discount, that has a very basic scratch pad. 
that scratch pad is okay. And now that I'm using it with Markdown, it's actually really powerful, but it doesn't word wrap. And I mean, I understand why they're keeping the features very bare bones, but the lack of word wrap in the scratch pad of the Focus really does frustrate me. So that's something that you might want to consider. Other Braille display developers are doing much more in a kind of a note taker style. And the Mantis, the new Braille display you referred to with the QWERTY keyboard from APH, that seems to have a pretty good note taker built in. You may find that you're happier with a QWERTY keyboard device like the Mantis and a Braille display. One of the things about Brailing into a device, especially if you haven't done it for a while, is that as you pick up speed and you start to Braille faster, sometimes it is possible to inadvertently hold the space bar down just a little bit too long when you're brailing your next character and you find that you've executed a chord command by accident. A chord command is when you perform a function by holding down the space bar in combination with another series of the dots on the Perkins keyboard. Regarding UEB, I wouldn't be too worried about that because that is a function of the screen reader that you'll be connecting it to. And all of the screen readers do give you the chance to work with the old North American Braille if you want to. So if you would rather postpone UEB for another day, particularly while you're getting used to your new Braille display, just don't turn UEB on. Just set the Braille that you're familiar with. And that's just one less thing to contend with at the beginning. You can switch to UEB later if you want. And that does have advantages for input in particular because it's less ambiguous. So those are just a few of my thoughts, but I would welcome anyone else's thoughts for Jason on what should be considered when looking at a new Braille display. If you are interested in this topic, there is a very good book, and the 2020 edition is still pretty current, from Jackie Brown, who loves writing about Braille and Braille displays, and it's called Braille on Display, and it's a great way to look at what's on the market before you make a purchase. You can go to the Mosin Consulting Store, in fact, to buy that book. Mosin.org, that's M-O-S-E-N.org. Choose the Mosin Consulting Store link from that page and find Braille on Display 2020 edition by Jackie Brown. And while we're talking about Braille, here's a very interesting email from Michael Bullis. There's a name from way back. He says, hi, Jonathan. I notice you read from your Braille with a capital B display very smoothly. Well, thank you. The only way I can read that smoothly is by printing documents out. Are you using a 40 or 80 character display? I've never had an 80 character display. Too expensive. I'm looking at the new APH 40 character display because it's finally affordable. Is 40 characters enough? Do you have any other advice on how to read smoothly from a Braille display? When I read paper Braille, I can use my right hand to start the next line. Obviously, I can't do that with a Braille display, so any advice you have is much appreciated. Good to hear from you, Mike. When I was working in the industry, I did have access to 80-cell Braille displays from time to time. I remember when we did the Brailleant 80 when I was working for Humanware, and it was so long and sleek and stuff. And I said, you know what we should call this thing? We should call it the Brailleant Julia Roberts. And everybody said, you can't call it that. And they're probably right. Imagine all the trademark issues. Anyway, 
And then, of course, I had a Focus uh, 80 Braille display. But no, now I'm just using a Focus 40 Blue fifth generation Braille display, and I find that adequate. In fact, I think an 80 cell Braille display would be a bit too long for fluent reading because you have to sort of stretch your arms out a bit. I have to stretch my little arms, and I think it would be uncomfortable to do a lot of um, extensive reading that way. Certainly it's nice for formatting, I guess, but I don't really think 80 cells are necessary for fluent reading. The biggest piece of advice I would offer you about fluent reading with a Braille display, the first thing you should do if you have a Braille display with thumb keys, and I personally just would not buy a Braille display without thumb keys because I want my Braille reading fingers on the display at all times and just scrolling with my thumbs, is reverse the thumb keys. That is such a productivity booster you would not believe. So don't have it set up so that when you get to the right-hand end of the line, you then press the right-hand thumb key. That is really going to slow you down. I don't understand why manufacturers just don't have the thumb keys the other way by default. Change that, and I think you will find that once you get used to it, if you've been reading with the thumb keys the other way for a while, it might take you a while, but when you've adjusted, you'll think, what What took me so long to do that? And I find that that really helps me because essentially I'm reading towards the end. My brain's processing. I'm pressing that left thumb key. There's kind of like a fluidity to it that gives me a sort of a buffer. So when I'm speaking what I'm reading, I'm actually quite a little bit ahead. I guess I start to read maybe half a line or three quarters of a line before I start to speak. And that way I'm slightly ahead of myself so that if I stumble, it doesn't always work, of course, as you can hear on the show. But usually if I stumble or think, what well, what is this I'm reading? I can um, pick it up quickly enough to keep the flow going. It would be good to hear from people about fluent Braille reading in a speaking context. If you are having to present from Braille, if like me, you get up and you give presentations Um, reports, that kind of thing. How do you do it? What do you find works for you? Hello, Jonathan. I hope you're doing well. Um, Okay, a couple of things I want to talk about tonight. Um, As far as the blindism things are concerned, I do still occasionally do things like poke my eye. That's about the only thing I do. I've never been one to rock or do anything else. There were some people that thought that echolocation was a blindism until... My parents actually helped them write. This was when I was very, very young. So that's, I, I was always taught, you know, right from wrong where blindisms are concerned, what looks right in the world and what doesn't, such as rocking or doing all these weird things. There, there was a guy at school that used to take his hands and rub them together like, like that the whole time while spinning around madly. And he would do this for hours on end where else he would have a little piece of paper and he would rub that into the other hand. So it'll make this tick, 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 tick sound. And as I said, for hours on end, he would do this. And that was, that was a, a eye opener for me, if I can put it like that. You know, how bad it can get. Another thing about the photo taking app, I use Be My Eyes if I want to check stuff. If there's more than one item I'm going to check and if uh, my wife isn't here. The other thing that I do use often, for example, if I want to check if our geezer's on, is an app called Be Specular. Seeing AI also works very well, but before seeing AI, I used to use Be Specular. You can upload more than one photo at a time, 
and you can then attach a question either with a voice note or you can type text and then they can come back to you either with text or voice note and once you get your first reply the app asks you do you want further replies and then you will you can rate each each reply on how good their answer was so that, that's a pretty nifty app as well the voice quality is very good obviously depending on their phone how they what the quality is of how they reply but the majority is pretty good and some people just give you a pretty short abrupt answer and others are really going to detail and those are right five star you got from zero stars to five stars and then the last topic i want to know and this this might be i'm wondering what people will say about this the ios voices are very good and i prefer the karen australia version there's although they're all pretty good i'm pretty okay with all of them but how do people feel i would love it if they could have eloquence for iOS, it's always been very snappy. It's fast. Um, you can really work fast with eloquence and get things done. It might not be the clearest voice when you compare it to voices these days. The, the actual quality of it, it might not be, might not be brilliant at all, but it's snappy and it's something I think we're all used to. So how do you feel and how do other people feel about having eloquence on iOS? That's a good newsy contribution, Gary. And thanks for reminding us about Bespecular. It's just a reminder that there are so many good camera apps out there serving a range of purposes. And our cup runneth over. We have got a long way to go, of course. And sometimes on the show, we reflect on that as we should. But it's nice to step back and think how far we have come as well. The topic of eloquence on the iPhone has come up quite a bit, particularly given that there were rumors of a text-to-speech API coming in iOS 14. Now, Francisco actually emailed in on this and said that the TTS API was in beta 1 of iOS 14 that was released to developers, but it was not in beta 2. Now, whether they've just temporarily removed it or whether we are now getting a signal that we may not see this into iOS 15, who knows? But even if we get the text-to-speech API in iOS 14, a listener pointed out to me when we discussed this a few weeks ago that it may not necessarily mean that a company like Code Factory, which seems to have been able to get nuance to give them eloquence for sale, could provide it on iOS and the theory behind that was that Eloquence is 32-bit code. It has not been ported to 64-bit to the best of anyone's knowledge. I presume that the JAWS 64-bit version is using 32-bit Eloquence because I understand that 64-bit Android devices don't have access to Eloquence anymore. So if that's the case, that's a shame because like you and many others, I would love to see Eloquence on iOS but even if we get this TTS API, if it's true that you can't port eloquence to 64-bit, then we may never see it. And that is a real shame. It does, however, prompt me to ask for people's opinions about their favorite text-to-speech engine and why they make the choice that they do. I like eloquence because I believe it's a pretty good combination of responsiveness, being able to crank it up at a good rate, while still being intelligible. And for me, the really big thing in Eloquence's favor is that if it mispronounces something, nine times out of 10, it's because you've typed it incorrectly. And before the days when we had all the instant spell checker stuff that we now have in Word and Outlook, that was quite useful, although I would never send anything out 
without rolling it through a spell checker first. Now, Alex, on the other hand, mispronounces so much that it just frustrates me and I just don't use it. The fact that Alex breathes is kind of a nice gimmick for the first sort of 20 minutes or whatever, but then it gets old. And it just, to me, has so many pronunciation inaccuracies that I just don't find it a viable voice, especially when I'm using social media. And some of the things that it mispronounces are just so frequent and bad (laughs) that I find myself always giving up on Alex. Broadly speaking, there are two kinds of voices out there. One type is called formant speech, and that's where you are synthesizing speech. This is where the term speech synthesizer comes from. And of course, they used to be physical boxes that you would plug into a serial port in the very early days, and they would synthesize the human voice. Then we moved on to concatenated speech, which took tiny samples of real human speech and strung them together. And as computers have become more powerful, that's become more viable and they've become a lot more accurate over time. Certainly the nuanced voices have got a lot of take up in the blind community, haven't they? You can get a wide range of them for JAWS. They're also available in iOS and on Mac OS. And I think you can also get add-ons for NVDA as well. But there are many others. Microsoft has an increasing number of text-to-speech engines available, some of which are quite good. You get old classics that are still quite viable, like NeoSpeech, Paul and Kate, which the Kurzweil 1000 made popular many years ago. And you can still get those on Voice Dream Reader. And of course, the Archipella Voices which are available through Voice Dream Reader as well. So there are actually quite a lot of speech engines out there. And if you know where to look and how to install them, you can get a lot of choice and there's got to be something that suits you. One of the comments that someone made to me about the Karen voice, and it never occurred to me until I heard this from someone. And then I thought, that's sort of right, is that the Karen voice sounds a bit sad, sounds a bit sort of like Eeyore-like, as in Eeyore, the, the character in Winnie the Pooh. She sort of sounds sad, just the inflection of everything she says. But those nuanced voices are kind of just ubiquitous, ubiquitous everywhere. You can be in a cab or something and Karen's constantly talking on things or at an airport or something where they've done automated announcements. And I think that's because she's the sort of default nuance Australia and New Zealand voice. And the stories about who some of these people are really are fascinating. So Karen is really called Karen, and she's Karen Jacobson. She's a singer. You can actually go on to streaming music services and hear the real Karen Jacobson singing. She's actually really good. She writes her own stuff as well, I think. And some of her stuff is quite beautiful. Now, Daniel, 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 on the other hand, which is my favorite nuance voice, but only the compact one. i I find it interesting that the the tonal quality of some of these voices differs so much from the compact to the full versions. And I can't cope with the full version of Daniel, but the compact is the closest thing I've found to eloquence, really, where you can crank it up at a decent clip and it still sounds okay. His real name is, I think, John Briggs, and he's quite a well-known personality in the United Kingdom. So I don't know why they chose to call him Daniel. And there are many other voices as well. So what voice do you like and why? 
The only voice that I just find absolutely unintelligible is eSpeak. I can't understand it. And in fact, I had to give up on a really promising demonstration that somebody had done of some software that I was quite interested in because I just simply could not hear the speech. I could not interpret the speech at all because it was eSpeak. So maybe we can have a talk about the voice you like, but also in general terms, what do you look for when it comes to text to speech? Do you listen to certain types of voices for certain types of occasions? In other words, if you're proofing a document or you're just listening to something quickly, will you use one voice and do you then switch voices or perhaps have a separate profile set up in a book reading app like Kindle? and use a more human-sounding voice for that reading. would be interesting to hear that. Hello, Jonathan. My name is Anil. Regarding my favorite synthesizer, it used to be Eloquence since long time. But now, a new synthesizer that is coming with Microsoft Edge is started to become my favorite. I don't know the name, but it's... Good to try it out. Mr. Brian Gaff on the subject says, you are indeed right. Of course I am. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it is a personal thing. And I use for my screen reader voice on the PC, UK English eSpeak Quincy, a voice I wrote some years ago for eSpeak. It has a deep tone. And yes, it's electronic, but it can work very fast for me. I cannot get on with eloquence, but it is also responsive. It's just that its pronunciation makes me want to give it a slap. That's interesting. It sounds, he says, like it has recently lost some front teeth. I'd like it on my iPhone, but I have to put up with Daniel, who is also on the PC for reading text, as is Serena. But I do find Dan the Man a little bit patronizing. I know the man is, in reality, John Briggs, who seems to be almost human in the flesh. I was intrigued by the voice in Edge, though, in Windows 7. It is really smooth. Pity that one is not available outside Edge. Yes, I don't think, and I'd love to be proven wrong, I don't think you can harness that particular voice, that immersive reader voice, or whatever it's called, to work with your screen reader, can you? It would be interesting to know. Derry Lawler is in touch. Hi, Derry. He says, hi, Jonathan. Love the podcast. And it is my must-listen-to show every week. Well, thank you. Voices, he says. I do like Vocalizer Tom Enhanced on the PC and reading EPUB books on the iPhone. I use it on the Voice Dream Reader app. Braille display. I took the plunge only this year to purchase the right Braille display, which is a Focus 40 Blue 5th Generation. For a while, I bought smaller ones, but felt I needed the 40 cells for better reading. So while we were and still are on lockdown, I got myself a Focus 40 Blue 5th generation and how I love it for reading books and just seeing things fly while using JAWS. Also, there is a great game I play on the PC called Eurofly. And with the brow display, you can read the status of your plane, like how high you're flying, the speed, and other things. I am also giving iOS 14 public beta 1 a go. Oh, you're living on the edge, Derry. Living on the edge. And think this one is very good straight away. Keep up the good work and hi to all. Thank you, Derry. All the best to you. 
Tim says, I'm efficient with eSpeak because it is fast and speaks text according to fixed rules. It allows me to catch more spelling or punctuation errors than other voices. It certainly works better for me when programming. But as I heard you say on earlier occasions, there is nothing more personal than speech engine preference. During accessibility presentations, sighted listeners sometimes comment that the high-quality nuance voice I use gives them a headache. My reaction? I guess just an adult who is not used to reading black letters on a white background would get the master of all headaches when trying it for the first time. It's all a matter of training and what you're used to. I prefer eloquence, declares Rebecca Skipper. Specifically, Reed or Glenn. Reed or Glenn. I never liked the grandpa or grandma voices in eloquence. I prefer Tom and Nathan vocalizer voices. I prioritize responsiveness and no other synthesizer matches eloquence. I would like to purchase the Canute at some point. This is this multi-line Braille thing, isn't it? And it is easier for me to read a Braille page faster than a Braille display. I would advise against buying any Braille display that doesn't have a scratch pad or a way of taking notes in standalone mode. Bluetooth is not always reliable. Darren McDougall. Hi, Jonathan. First of all, I wanted to put in a word about speech synthesizers. There are lots of fashionable synthesizers out there and lots of good ones. (laughs) iOS has a lot of great English voices. I work a lot in French also. And I do find a lot of the French iOS voices to be underwhelming. Most of the Canadian French voices in particular aren't pleasant to my ears and mispronounce far too many words by today's standards. I've been using eloquence with JAWS for 20 years and I must say it's my favorite. Maybe I'm a dinosaur, but to me eloquence still deserves a lot of credit. As for Braille with a capital B, I do read faster using hard copy Braille, though I am fond of using Braille displays also. And here's email from someone calling himself Bookshare John, which makes me think of an old Jimmy Dean song, you know, Big John, Bookshare John. Big... Anyway, he says, Hi Jonathan, I would have to say that Eloquence is still my favorite speech synthesizer. I started using JAWS two years before JAWS 10 was released, and at the time there was no real speak voices, which only started to be bundled with JAWS starting with version 10. Actually, I'm pretty sure it was version 8 that real speak came up, but anyway, we're not going to quibble over version numbers. I've gotten very used to eloquence and would not give it up for any so called natural engines. Bah! On the topic of suitable Braille, with a capital B, (laughs) he's actually written out with a capital B um, display. My favorite display is the U2 Mini. It might be too small for some people, but it's good enough for me. I own a Focus 40 as well, but I feel it's too big for me. And the mighty Quinn emails in from Iowa. Pam Quinn on the subject of speech synthesizers or text-to-speech engines. She says, my favorite text-to-speech is and always has been eloquence. I've purchased many of the more human-sounding voices that are available for Voice Dream, thinking I liked them at first, only to abandon them. Oh, you can't speed them up much without them sounding choppy 
and this is not the case at all with eloquence. It's really disappointing that eloquence seems to be on its way out. I so wish it would be available for the Victory to stream and the iPhone. Good on you, Pam. Long live eloquence, that's what I say. And this is a really interesting question. I too have had a bit of buyer's remorse when it comes to the premium voices on Voice Dream Reader. And that's not at all a dig at Winston Chen, who is a wonderful guy and a brilliant developer. And Voice Dream is just one of the most awesome apps in my life. I use it all the time. There wouldn't be a day that goes by when I haven't spent quite a bit of time in Voice Dream Reader. And it's great that he offers all of these choices to really sort of work around, circumvent the limitation that currently exists in iOS, where you can't install a whole range of voices across the operating system. But when I hear the demos, I think, yeah, they sound pretty good, especially some of those, are they the Avona voices, I think? Are they the the really kind of premium ones? And then Amazon took them over, didn't they? Something like that. And so you hear them and you think, whoa, they sound pretty good. And then when you actually download them and you start to use them in the context of reading a book, I often find, oh, I wish I hadn't bought it now, because I want to process the information as quickly as possible when I'm reading. I'm not after a machine to give me some sort of great Shakespearean recital. I want the information in my brain as quickly as possible. And like you, Pam, for me, nothing comes close to eloquence for that. If I wanted to hear a performance, a human-like performance, then I'd listen to an audiobook. And often I do not. I think I'm very unusual in this regard. I don't listen to a lot of audio anymore. I just find that I want the information. Hi, Jonathan. Uh, just some thoughts on thin- synthetic voices. I basically like Alex as my default voice. I use him for most things. I do switch sometimes between the American female Siri voice, which I find uh, getting better, uh, certainly more expressive in things than it was, and uh, the, the British female uh, Siri voice, and the Irish male Siri voice uh, is another one. Uh, those are excellent reading voices, very kind of human sounding, good for uh, reading through novels and things and, and really in, I find enjoying them. Alex is a good working voice. I usually use him when I'm uh, doing things actively and not just passively reading. It depends on, on what I'm doing. I, I like Alex for his, his uh, speed and sound and I just overall it suits me for Sarah she finds Alex a bit creepy uh sort of like a henchman uh you kind of picture him saying something like this will kill five million people are you sure you want to do this and I don't know I I I don't uh, I don't find that I, I don't find it intimidating or creepy I I find it it a, an interesting attempt to simulate more natural speech. I could do without the breathing, honestly, but I can live with it. It's not, it's not a real put off for me. I also tend to like, uh, Tom as, as a good voice. I like the more natural human thing. I can live with something like, uh, eloquence or, uh, e- even, uh, e-speak if I have to. I mean, they're certainly functional. I can use them, but for me, it, there comes a point when, like, I just can't, I'm not one of these these speed demons, right? I mean, uh, you know, I I can't just race at the rate that some people can with these voices. So for me, I'm not losing any speed for the luxury of a more human sounding voice. So that's that tends to be where I sit on that. Uh and I think it helps new newcomers feel just a little less 
uh, put off by, you know, mastering the new technology. If it's a voice they can kind of relate to, if it, if it kind of gives that illusion of relatability. And now I guess there is that uncanny valley where you get too close to sounding truly human and you're not quite there and it kind of puts people off. I can, I can appreciate that too. Thank you, Mike. There we go. An Alex advocate at last. And I suppose that's right. If you were to categorize these things, you have human-like sounding speech where natural sound is the key. And I think that does help a lot of people who perhaps have gone blind recently and need something transitional, you know, have not grown up with this technology. And then you have those who just want to get the information out as quickly as possible. Given how much Alex fundamentally mispronounces, I do wonder about the impact of some of these text-to-speech engines on spelling. And I hesitate to point this out But it just boggles my mind in this day and age when we all have access to spell checkers, how often I see emails from people who take so little pride in their work that they will not run it through the spell checker that is available to them. I just find that extraordinary that they would knowingly send out something that hasn't been spell checked when it's so easy to do it. But I do wonder what impact voices have on spell checking, the most extraordinary one that I see, and it only happens when I get emails from some blind people in the United States, is how frequently some people confuse sense and since. It's amazing how often I see this, and I don't understand why that is, because sense and since don't even sound the same. And of course, they mean very different things. I'm talking about S-E-N-S-E, versus S-I-N-C-E. And I often see things like, I can't do this since I'm busy that week. And I'm thinking, where does this come from? And I wonder the degree to which speech synthesizers or text-to-speech engines have an impact on spelling. Email from Wes on this subject, who says, Hi, Jonathan, hope you are well. I'm coming to you from Iowa, where we are under a heat advisory and have the dubious distinction of being on the unpublished CDC report putting us in the red zone of states that should consider rolling back reopening strategies. Due to our political ideology, I believe this to be unlikely. Interestingly, Nebraska, where my wife is currently, is not on this report, although its political ideology is similar. I think Iowa's more urban nature has caused cases to go up. I just wish you guys all the very best there. It is so, so tragic to me. People who say that leadership doesn't matter or that elections don't matter need only look at the disastrous situation unfolding in the United States because of one incompetent and dangerous individual, namely that president, and you know that elections matter. When I see those cases going up every day, and I think yesterday it got to 77,000 new cases, It really is a terrible thing. I just wish you all the best and my heart goes out to everybody affected. And I can only imagine how helpless it makes people feel. Regarding speech engines, continues Wes, I have always enjoyed using eloquence. It is fast and responsive. I still have a fondness for the deck talk I had in high school. Oh, yes. And of course, who can forget making it sing? They were so much fun. And for me, deck talk, you know, back in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, it was kind of like the holy grail. It was the thing to aim for. 
to own a deck talk. And I remember when I got the deck talk in software, what do they call it? Deck talk access, deck talk access 32. I thought I was the bee's knees getting that. <laughs> anyway, um, Wes continues. Although I wouldn't use them as daily drivers, I still like hearing the Echo Commander and the Keynote Gold for nostalgia purposes, like voices from old friends. Once I picked up a synthesizer comparison tape done by Ted Henter in 1989 and thought the Pros 4000 sounded neat. I like the sounds of the Google Voices, the soup drinker, and the voices that Microsoft uses for immersive reading, but bet that using them for screen readers would be problematic. Lots of these newer voices don't speak well at high speeds and tend to swallow words when reading large passages. NV Access was working on a project for a new speech engine that used the CLAT speech rendering technique used in DeckTalk. Although it was a pain to find the right add-on file, it sounded passable, immensely better than eSpeak, which a friend of mine once described as the angry Welsh robot. Oh my word. <laughs> I think hardware synthy continues were better at interruptibility and fast response times when reading and navigating. I think that's a really interesting point, Wes, that I don't think has come up in this discussion yet, that responsiveness is also important when you're arrowing around, isn't it, when you're navigating and you want really quick response. And boy, some of those old synths that plugged into the RS-232 port or even that were a card in your PC were pretty responsive. Double talk was like that. And I actually had an Accent speech synthesizer. Does anyone remember Accent? from Acom Corporation, Accent Ready. And I think I heard a tape of the Accent recently and I thought, wow, I can't believe I used to listen to that. But I did. I had it cranked up really fast and boy, that was very responsive. I had the Accent that was a, a card that sat in your PC and that was rocking. Now, Wes continues, regarding Braille displays, I think the choosing process is difficult when you cannot get your hands on some displays to read with and try out the keyboard. My favorite display out there right now is VFO's Focus 40 Blue 5th Generation. This may change when I see the new Orbit 40, Mantis, and Chameleon. The Q-Braille is a major disappointment. Some of my complaints are, and we've got a bulleted list and everything, odd placement of the spacebar, heavy device, does not correctly support USB power delivery, and thus charges slowly. Fiddly connectivity with iOS Bluetooth. The much ballyhooed hybrid mode is not correctly supported in iOS. Despite its loudness, I like the Orbit Reader 20. It's a nice entry-level display and is very robust if you do not have a lot of cash to spend. If you get the Executive Products leather case, the soft inner lining and leather do muffle the noise somewhat. Another email from Graham Ennis in sunny Australia who says, Hello, Jonathan, I just listened to your Markdown podcast and found your solution quite attractive. However, it prompted me to wonder about the Focus Blue scratch pad. As you know, I work exclusively on my iPhone with two Focus Blue displays and have been advised that it's not possible to move files from the scratch pad to the iPhone. I have, therefore, not worried. 
about learning how to use it. However, there are a number of use cases for me where it would be better to go into the scratch pad rather than take notes in the iPhone app. One example is when I am on a Zoom or Teams meeting and want to either take notes or reference an agenda to chair a meeting. Is this possible? Thanks as always for the entertaining and informative show which I do not listen to because I am not awake and the pod which I listen to for every episode. Oh, well, there you go. I'll take that. Thank you, Graham. It is four in the morning when the show starts in Australia, in Eastern Australian time. But uh, this does remind me to tell people that the show in its entirety does get replayed on Mushroom FM, and that happens at 5 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Tuesday, which at the moment happens to be a fairly civilized 7 p.m. on Tuesday night in Eastern Australia. Struth! You might be busy doing other things at 7 p.m., Graham. But anyway, I'm delighted, delighted that you're listening to the podcast. Yes, there is a way for you to get files off the scratch pad of the Focus and into your iPhone, but unfortunately, it is a bit fiddly. I do admire your tenacity, given all that you do in your life, and not buying yourself a laptop. I'd get a nice, classy HP Spectrefolio laptop in your case, and then you'd be rocking, you know? Chuck jaws on it. Sweet. Anyway, the way around this would be to purchase the shiny new USB 3.0 Apple camera adapter kit or whatever they're calling it at the moment. This is a little thing that plugs into your lightning port and then you have a USB port in it. And then you could purchase an SD card reader. You could connect that SD card reader and it should show up in the Files app. My understanding is that that will work on the iPhone. It certainly will work on an iPad. I'm pretty sure that it will also show up on the iPhone and so then you'd go into the files app and you'd be able to get to your files. Now, in theory, that's all very beautiful, but let's not forget that the tiny little SD card, what do they use? Micro SD, I think, in the Focus 40 Blue browser displays. It's kind of tucked away in there. You have to get the card out every time. You'd have to put the card in the reader and then read the file And I guess the question is, do you want to risk losing that card, which could certainly be done in transit between one device and another because it's such a fiddly small thing. So you might be able to do it. I'm pretty sure you can. Whether you would want to on a practical day-to-day basis, I am not sure. But if you ever do go laptop shopping, Graham, I'd be happy to accompany you virtually on that journey. I love shopping for technology especially when I'm not the one paying. Here's Roberto Perez, who says, Hi, Jonathan, congratulations on that new podcast provider. The possibility of having multiple podcasts is a huge benefit, at least for us listeners. Since you're going to be talking about reading with Braille displays in this new episode of Mosin at Large, I thought of asking you a question that you may have a good answer for and benefit other listeners who are Braille readers as well. When we read with JAWS using a Braille display, JAWS apparently can only send one line of text to the display at a time. The effect of this is that as you read using the panning keys in your Braille display of choice, you have a line of full text followed by another one with a few words, another one full of text, and so on. This is particularly noticeable when reading a Kindle book or in any application where JAWS uses the virtual PC cursor. 
It is not as problematic when you read in iOS because VoiceOver sends bigger chunks of text to the display, usually entire paragraphs. Therefore, the line is full of text most of the time. And when it isn't, it often coincides with the end of a logical unit of text. Do you know of a way to improve the reading experience with JAWS? Again, thanks a lot for maintaining such an awesome space. It is fun and informative. Thanks so much, Roberto. I have not got the Kindle app on my PC here in the studio to just quickly take a look at this. I must confess that for content consumption, in other words, sitting back and reading things, I do almost all of it with my iPhone now. For reading Braille, iOS is superb for that, and for that matter, iPad OS as well. I haven't seen this, though, in things I do use like PDF documents and web pages. When I got your email, I opened up a web page, a news site that I use regularly, and I was reading a story really fluently. And as you say, if there's a new paragraph or something like that, then yes, you may have a couple of words on a line because there's a new paragraph there. Other than that, I wasn't really seeing a lot of broken up text in the manner that you describe. So that's with my Focus 40 Blue And I'm not sure what the difference is, what Braille display you have, whether that's a factor or whether it's your settings. But as I think about this, I think I may have seen this from time to time in email messages in Microsoft Outlook with JAWS. And again, I do a lot of my email now on my phone, but I think I have seen this. There are two modes that you can choose from. And in the JAWS setting center, you can set this on a per app basis and you can have structured mode or this, they used to call it speech box mode. I think they've got a slightly different name for it now. And so that may make a difference. If you choose structured mode, you can also go in and make a lot of tweaks to structured mode. It's quite fantastic. So I don't have a specific answer to this one, but perhaps other Braille readers can comment on settings that they have found optimal for maximizing the real estate on the Braille display. You can, for example, turn word wrap off that will maximize the amount of Braille you get on your display. Now, as somebody who does a lot of reading out loud, I find that I can't do that, that turning word wrap off slows me down because I have to reassemble the broken words between lines. It's also possible to turn on a presentation mode for virtual documents, which will stop hyperlinks from appearing on their own line. I don't know if that impacts Braille or not. So this isn't a problem I've had to investigate to try and fix. You have got me curious now, and I should download the Kindle app and see how it works. But as I say, usually when I want to read, I do so on my iPhone. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. It's frustrating, unfair, and most of us have been there far too often. We want to buy a present for a loved one, only to find that the website that is just the thing we want isn't accessible. Recently, I downloaded an app which promotes low-carb eating, something that has changed my life, only to find that it's completely inaccessible with voiceover, no elements read at all. At work, we may receive PDFs containing inaccessible images and hard copies of PowerPoint presentations, which run blissfully inaccessibly at the front of the room on a big screen. Many politicians who want votes don't want the votes of blind people badly enough to even take the time to add alt text to their photos on Twitter. 
The technology many of us have access to today is empowering, it's liberating, it's game-changing. But when accessibility problems strike, and sadly they usually strike at the most inopportune times, it can be incredibly demoralizing. Now, there are many people who are striving to make it better. Advocates have stuck their heads above the parapet and insisted that things must change. Sometimes that's happened through public education. Sometimes it's been given a huge nudge thanks to legislation and litigation. Assistive technology itself has become better and smarter, and accessibility professionals have created standards and worked hard to see those barriers come crashing down. I've had the privilege over my career to do all of those things. I've been an advocate, a senior figure in the assistive technology industry, and an accessibility professional. Now, when we have to go into battle so often just to transact business or enjoy entertainment or get our jobs done, it is little wonder that people feel passionate about the topic of accessibility. And unsurprisingly, we expect the highest possible conduct from those in the accessibility industry. Last week, we received a call to the podcast from Tim, who's from the Netherlands, and I think the best word that I can use to describe the tone of his message was flabbergasted. He expressed an opinion that the International Association of Accessibility Professionals was treating him and other blind people differently, which I guess some people would call discrimination, by requiring a different process for blind people compared with everybody else. In response to Tim's call... I received tweets during last week's show advising me that a resolution expressing concerns about IAAP certification has been submitted to the National Federation of the Blind for their convention, something I wasn't aware of until the show. The author of that resolution is Daryl Hilliker, and he has sent an audio clip for the show. Hello, Jonathan and fellow Mosin at Large listeners. I am the one who has written the resolution concerning the IAAP testing situation for the NFB convention, and it will be discussed at the resolutions committee, and hopefully it will be recommended for pass by that committee and will be taken up at the 2020 NFB convention. I did receive considerable assistance from another uh, fellow federationist, Ty Tomasi. I have decided to sit for the WAS, the Web Accessibility Specialist exam. And uh, given the situation with COVID-19, the IAAP has decided that family members can serve as those private proctors for the separate but equal exam that blind people are permitted to take. By the way, I want to let everyone know that the exam itself has been designed to work with screen readers. So if you do go this private proctor route, you do actually get an accessible exam that is WCAG compliant in accordance with what we are being taught and what we are sitting for on the, you know, the content we are sitting for on the on the exam, it's just locked behind this crazy separate but, well, separate but unequal procedure. Under the circumstances, given COVID-19 and the use of remote exam protocols, uh, IAP has decided that family members can serve as proctors. So I said, fine, I would like to take the 
WAS exam, here's my money. By the way, I select Allison Hilliker, my wife, as the proctor for the exam. That was all fine and good. We, we get everything set up. But the chair of the certification exam portion of the association, Samantha Evans, wrote in her email to me, please be sure that Allison can see well enough to verify your identity because that's a really important part of our process. At first, I'm like, well, that's none of your business as long as the identity is verified through whatever procedure Allison chooses to use. So long as it get, gets done, it's frankly none of your business how, how that's done. If you have concerns, you may choose to use whatever apparatus you feel you need to use to investigate, so long as that is based on my exam conduct and not based on her status as a blind proctor. I could have chosen, uh, as, as one of my colleagues had suggested, not to really say anything and just let the process be done with nobody ever knowing that she was blind. So I didn't. I chose to let Samantha know that she is blind, and there are several solutions in mind for how a blind proctor would handle verifying identity, but that, in fact, she doesn't have to let you know that. She just has to get the job done and uh, proctor my exam in accordance with your flexible policy under COVID-19. And then I also chose to write a letter to Susanna Lauren, uh, L-A-U-R-I-N, who is the chair of IAAP at the moment, and expressed my concerns with her, to which she replied saying, well, of course we allow blind proctors. She mentioned some ISO standard that they follow concerning verifying identification. And she's like, well, how about we have an IAAP staff person come on at the beginning, you know, just before you take your exam and verify your ID through through video conferencing. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. That should have been discussed as a solution before just categorically deciding that somebody had to be able to, quote, see, quote, well enough to perform that function. I'm fine with that solution. So at 2 p.m., I'm taking the exam, 2 p.m. Pacific on July 15th. Allison is going to be my proctor. She's totally blind, just like me. But we shouldn't even do this. You know, criteria, the, the testing uh, centers that they use are, are criteria, uh, spelled K-R-Y-T-E-R-I-A. And really, criteria should know how to do this. Criteria should, you know, they administer thousands, probably, probably millions of exams. Criteria should have a procedure in place to handle things when a person wants to take an accessible exam. Uh, I'm sorry, but this is 2020, folks, and the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines have been in existence since 1998. The ADA has been law in the U.S. for 30 years. We all know better by this point, folks. We all know better. I, I don't really accept excuses anymore when it comes to accessibility and when it comes to these kind of kind of situations. You either have an accessible process or you reasonably accommodate. So I uh, proposed a resolution at convention. It essentially describes this process and asks the IAAP to 
devise a testing scenario that is accessible to everyone, including blind people, and uh, is the same process for blind and sighted people. Now, that resolution was debated by the NFB's Resolution Committee, and it has been sent to the convention floor. As I put this together, the debate is almost taking place. So by the time you hear this, it's possible that we will know whether the NFB passed that resolution or not. I understand that the IAAP disagrees with and has refuted some of the statements, in fact, all of the statements made in that resolution. Now, as I mentioned last week, I reached out to the International Association of Accessibility Professionals and asked if we could have someone join us on the podcast to discuss these issues, which have been debated quite passionately by both sides on social media. Because while differences of opinion are valid, and of course they may remain after this discussion, it is important that our opinions are informed by knowledge of the facts. So joining me, to discuss these issues is Sam Evans. She is the Certification Manager at the International Association of Accessibility Professionals. Hi, Sam. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Jonathan, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. Can I just talk in broad terms first, so everyone's up to speed. What does the International Association of Accessibility Professionals do? What's its purpose in life? So IAAP is a professional society um, for accessibility professionals and practitioners across industries, roles, and technologies. We uh, have members and both individuals and organizations in 67 countries around the world and uh, are represented by just about 4,000 individual members um, across those, those countries and different companies. So our work is to advance the understanding an awareness of accessibility in the business and uh, nonprofit and social world, and to help provide education and access to accessibility professionals for people in industry, as well as professional development opportunities for the accessibility professional and practitioners. Would you agree that IAAP in particular has a moral obligation to demonstrate absolute best accessibility practice? In other words, it's got to walk its own talk, right? Agreed. And I believe that we strive for that. And I am hoping to provide uh, some context for the limitations that we face. And I hate ever talking about structural limitations. But when we deal with technology, I know that everyone is familiar with the technology challenges that the world faces for accessibility. So we have worked to provide a workaround for the gaps that are in the, in the things that are missing in the technology world. And so um, I hope to address uh, the gentleman from the Netherlands concerns. And um, if, we'd, if we'd had an opportunity to, to engage with him, I, I would hope to have had the chance to, to clarify his concerns. Um, and we, were, we are working on accessibility technologies, especially when it comes to testing examinations and certifications. And we can talk about that again a little bit more in depth as we continue our conversation today. Sure. Yeah, I'd like to go through each of those contributions in turn and give you ample opportunity to respond to them both individually. Just before I get there, one of the catch cries of the disability movement is, of course, nothing about us without us. To what extent would you say that IAAP is disability driven? I believe if we look at our leadership council and our committees, we are tilted 
probably 60-40 of all of our contributors and leadership being people with disabilities, I believe. We don't ask for them to disclose their disabilities, but um, our our committees and leadership are, are actually run by people with disabilities and advocates together. Um, our managing director uh, is dyslexic and has other learning disabilities as well and pursued alternative media as his his lifeblood to get through graduate school and then on to his PhD. So um, our parent organization, G3ICT, um, is an advocacy organization that works with the United Nations and uh, to advance advocacy and awareness of accessibility around the world. We're steeped in accessibility and and, and led by our volunteer leadership, who are people with disabilities, as well as members of our small staff. If I could, I'd like to address the two substantive contributions on this topic, one at a time, so that we make sure we cover everything. Could we talk first about Tim's call from the Netherlands, who started us on this track? He is a digital accessibility professional, he says, and he appears to have been put off even contacting the IAAP because of what he read on the website, which gave him the impression that there would not be an accessible experience for him, that he... I think he came to the conclusion he might have to use a reader for the exam. Could you talk us through what he had to say and your response to that? Sure. So I I listened to the to the audio clip from the gentleman from the Netherlands. It appears to me that he came to the website to read about the certification exam processes and was concerned about how to do an online exam. Um, but this is where I think first context needs to be provided about the test delivery environment in technology. There are a number of organizations and companies that offer test exams deliveries, both for higher education and for the corporate environment and for organizations that issue certifications and credentials. To our knowledge, um, and to the credentialing uh, organization of people that work in certification, none of these platforms have an accessible platform to be delivered in a test center. And none of them have an accessible version of an online test delivery. So this is something we've been working with our test delivery partners towards their progress towards accessibility. In the absence of there being an existing test delivery product in the market, that also conforms to the standard. There are international standards, ISO, um, that many people know, ISO and ANSI standards and other realms. For if you are managing a credentialing or certification program, you must adhere to those standards. Part of that is based in security and in the technology world with privacy and technology security issues being challenges. So we know that the given is that the test delivery platform environment does not offer an accessible platform or an online platform. In the absence of that, we have created an accessible version of our exams so that people can sit for the exam using their preferred assistive technology in a location of their choosing, not having to travel or incur any of the encumbrances of travel where that's a challenge. But what we are required to do is to have a proctor to secure the integrity of the exam process. So. We allow people to select a volunteer proctor if they have somebody in mind. Many people would prefer, prior to COVID, of course, not having someone they don't know come to their home or workplace, or they prefer for their own anxiety or other elements in, in their mental health to have someone they know that's more comfortable for them. If a volunteer proctor couldn't be found, we will access our community within IAAP 
to identify a volunteer proctor for either in-person or remote. And beyond that, our staff will then volunteer to remote proctor for someone so that a person who prefers not to travel, doesn't have a camera on their machine, or uses assistive technology can take the exam at the date, time, and location of their choosing using their own equipment. I believe that what did not sit well with the gentleman from the Netherlands was that there is a perception that that means there's a responsibility put upon the blind person that is different from a person who is not blind. Can I just check with you? You mentioned that you're required to do the proctoring. What is it that requires the proctoring at all? I I know, for example, that as somebody who is JAWS certified, Freedom Scientific goes through an online test. It is like yours, multiple choice. It takes some time to complete. You run a timer and you complete the test. Where is the requirement for proctoring? And wouldn't it just solve the problem, at least for now, to not do the proctoring at all and just say, here's an accessible online test? Skills assessment exams are different than professional certification credentials. And so they're different in process. So skills assessment exams do not require someone to observe. And I believe those I'm not familiar with the JAWS testing process, but um, the certification standards for people that are certifying individuals for a time-limited, renewable uh, certification that requires professional development to renew for ongoing certification adheres to those ISO standards that request a proctor to observe, whether in person or remotely and virtually. And so those are standards that are related to certification credentials for certification of individuals. If you took the proctoring away, would that make the certification somehow less valid or less attractive in, in some manner? It would mean that we do not adhere to international standards for certification of individuals. And if we are to be accredited and pursue that, which is what the next step is, as certification programs advance in maturity, the audit requires that there is a proctor, whether remote or in person, who agrees to ensure that the candidate doesn't access any other materials except for the test delivery product itself to make sure there are any interruptions if the test environment is not acceptable so that we have a representative that acts on behalf of our organization and in place of a test center that provides this in person to ensure that the exam environment format and delivery meets the terms that were promised and delivered, and that the candidate is observed and that there's no uh, nothing done that isn't appropriate for test takers. So I suppose there's an argument, and I've seen this argument advanced on Twitter, and some people feel strongly in both directions. But the argument is that the IAAP really has a moral obligation to be a bit of a champion on this issue, and that it should not use online proctoring at all until the industry is accessible. In other words, an organization like the IAAP should have no truck with any organization that is doing things inaccessibly. It should just be repugnance to the organization to, to, to play in that sandbox. Would that not give you the moral high ground? Well, the moral high ground, yes. But the challenge is we still have an obligation to the world at large to provide access to exams and to certification and to this education. So the question is, if we want to look at the numbers, we're a young organization, relatively speaking, six years. The organizations who have disability equity and inclusion statements 
that utilize the test delivery environment that have massive influence are the people that offer technical certifications, major software companies. <laughs> um, all of them use this, and they have DEI statements and accessibility statements as well. And we are working with them along with the credentialing industry to push this so that the people who have the greatest influence and the greatest impact, if IAAP were to withdraw our our engagement with a test delivery partner, we would remove 2,000 exams a year. If AWS or Microsoft or uh, any of the other IBM were to withdraw theirs, they would withdraw tens of thousands of exams every week. I'm an employer by day, and so I have to vet a lot of job applications and Mm -hmm. do job interviews. And there are all sorts of qualifications that people pick up online. Some really um, are just gimmicks. And so understandably, I know where you're coming from because I would want to ask, you know, this this qualification you are touting from the accessibility professionals, uh, is it ISO certified? What's its validity? And clearly that helps with the, the, the kudos, the authenticity of the application. But if somebody said to me, well, the organization that I took the certification from wants to use the ISO processes, but there are serious accessibility issues with the providers. So they, as a point of principle, they chose accessibility over segregation, over separate uh, but equal treatment. I, as an employer, would say, oh, God, that's terrible. I, I get that. I understand why this isn't ISO certified. That would require ISO to address the the accessibility issues in the test delivery platform environment. And I do understand. And the approach when, I, when IAAP was formed was that there was a desperate need to share the information and knowledge of accessibility across the board and to support that growth and development. I, I don't know that removing certification other than in-person is going to advance that process. Removing the ability for everyone to have access to test center and online remote proctored exams, I don't know would advance the mission or the benefits of expanding accessibility knowledge and the integration of accessibility and inclusion in the workplace. I don't know. It's my, I hypothesize that it would not be a greater benefit. I am working individually with people within some of these other very large swaths to help them craft their procurement statements, policies, and procedures so that within their processes and their arguments as the major influencers, that we can make that change. We're working with our test provider. They have to have a roadmap. They are working with a UX team. They are working with a well-known accessibility group, and they have a plan to actually redesign their entire platform. We know that that's a challenge. We are working to see if it's possible and feasible for us to develop our own platform, but that takes time and resources to work towards. So we're trying to find an appropriate balance. And we do have an accessible version of the exam. It is keystroke by keystroke, character by character, identical to what's delivered through test delivery partners. And that accessible version of our exams is the one that the candidate who is submitting something, I can't say his name because that violates our privacy policies. Uh, But the candidate is sitting for an accessible exam later this week and has said that our accommodations process for proctoring meets his needs perfectly and that accessible exams are great. 
Yes, so, yes, he he he's obviously self-identified on this show, so we can use his name. And he, he's indicated that um, by the time this show airs, he will have taken the exam. Mm-hmm. So some would be saying to you, look, the answer to this is to say until it's accessible fully to all of us, it's used by none of us. And what you've chosen to do, though, is in the interest, I guess, it, it, you would consider a pragmatic approach of, of doing what you can in the meantime to provide alternative accommodations, mindful that what we're talking about here is, is simply the, the proctoring system that, that this is behind. Uh, the exam itself is accessible. When I read the website, Sam, it, it, that wasn't clear to me. And I just wonder whether this might be a an area where the language could be clarified. The page that I, and there are quite a few pages that cover certification in different ways. I accept that. The one I landed on didn't make it clear to me that there was a fully accessible version of the exam and that we were just talking about the proctoring system. Okay. That is something that we can certainly work to clarify and make more clear so that there is no confusion. Um, and I can I can work on that. That's something that I can deliver in short order. Yes, obviously I can't speak for Tim, but I think what happened is that he thought he would need a reader to complete the exam. I think that's what he got. If someone wanted to go to a test center that doesn't have an accessible platform, that is the only accommodation that test delivery partners offer. We offer the accessible version of the exam, but we either need to ourselves be the proctor or allow someone to identify a proctor that they're comfortable with to serve in that role. Something that affects a lot of disabled people is the inaccessibility of so many of these psychometric testing platforms. And in my own role, I don't normally cross-pollinate quite to this degree, but in my own role, I do my best not to support inaccessible platforms, whether the person being tested has an accessibility-related need or not. To me, I just don't want money being funneled to an organization that doesn't care about accessibility. And that's the legitimate difference of opinion, isn't it? Even if we clarify some of these facts, there will be people who say that we have a moral obligation not to give money to companies that aren't fully committed to accessibility. Well, our approach is to work to make the change happen in the psychometric test partner delivery platform world. They will not listen to people who are not engaged, unfortunately, I don't think. I think there could be advocates that could speak to, you'd be so much better served, you would be such a better partner, you would be such a better engagement, socially, civically, corporate responsibility. But I don't think that effectively works in a lot of technical environments. Would you agree? It, does it, it, legislation and litigation, i are the only things that I seem to see make progress. Yes, I I agree with that because the number of people involved is just so small. It doesn't sort of make enough of a dent in market share. So legislation really is the only remedy there. Right. So what we're seeing in legislation in the EU right now, one of the major test providers has been called on their inaccessible platform. And two blind users were relegated to a reader and recorder. And the ombudsman has given that test delivery partner until December to fix it and has declared it as dismissed because they're presuming that that test partner will resolve and remediate their entire platform. It is extraordinary, isn't it, that here we are, and I think Daryl makes this point in his audio contribution, here we are in 2020 and we're still having these problems. And these are not of the IAAP's making. The fact that after all this time, it is still difficult to find a fully accessible solution in this area. 
It is. And we have members of IAAP that are on the accessibility teams at these test delivery partners. There are internal dialogues that are contrary to one another. They have accessibility teams that have made it clear to them what needs to be done. The decision-making is not happening from the corporate level down to actually integrate accessibility into their policies and procedures. So we're trying to provide the legal, the HR, the accessibility teams, the marketing teams with the information to help them build a better argument to inclusion and not counter to inclusion. And, And that's a larger responsibility. And so we are working that on both sides. In the interim, if you disagree, that's that's fine. But I think that forcing people to have a different approach as an alternate that is an, an equitable approach, we we will provide the proctor. All we even need to do is connection for a camera and a screen share. We can be that proctor if needed. Some people would prefer not to have a stranger observe them, and that's fine. And we leave that to choice for the person the challenge of, of saying that we can only have people in person for exams, especially in COVID with quarantine and health concerns, we don't want anyone to have to compromise in any capacity about their health and safety. It's a hard thing to do. We have been searching for three years to try to find a CMS that is accessible so that we can sunset the one we're using currently <laughs> and move to one that's accessible. They just don't exist. So we've used, we've selected Salesforce and are custom coding all of the interface for that. Yes, Salesforce is incredibly powerful. It's, uh, it's it is. what you can do with it. And yeah. they do a great job of providing access to nonprofits to have access to a really great tool that does have a back end that's accessible so that we can build an accessible front end. The test delivery world doesn't have that yet. Can you just summarize for me then so that we're, we're clear? If I am a blind person and I want to take this exam, what are my options? So your options are to choose which format and location you would prefer for your exam. You can certainly go to a test center if you'd like, understanding that test centers require 30 days notice to put in a request for a reader and recorder in a private room. Or you can select a privately proctored exam and either identify a volunteer proctor of your choosing or work with IAAP to deliver that. We have an accessible platform. It's the same exam and the same content. And we would provide the oversight where that is provided at a test center when you go in person. The online remote proctoring security protocols that every test delivery partner uses locks down keystrokes that don't allow you to use tab, arrow, shift, combinations that we use for assistive technology. So online remote proctoring is not an option. So we can take that off the off the table, which is where our accessible exam options come in. We work with proctors of every type of ability and disability. There is a misconception. No one told anyone that blind people cannot proctor. We caveated in the words in the email where that there is one component of the proctoring responsibilities that does require visual acuity. And that is where we often step in and provide by Zoom or FaceTime to be the person that verifies the photo issued identification matches the person that is sitting for the exam. And that's no different than a qualification to vote in most countries <laughs> or to, to, to get a state issued ID or other access when you're in college, higher education when you get employment, you have to provide a photo ID to verify you are the person. So we offer that as a liaison using technology. Unfortunately, we can't use 
third party vendors like Be My Eyes or Aria, uh, those, because that person on the other end hasn't signed our proctor agreement to uphold the integrity of the content and the process. So our staff steps in to provide that liaison for the proctor. Uh, a blind proctor can certainly observe and and oversee all of the other elements with proctoring. And um, unfortunately, when I typed the words that there is one component of proctoring that does require some visual acuity, then it was presumed that we were saying, and we never did say, blind people cannot proctor. That was the assumption that was made, and that's unfortunate. Um, but I do regularly provide that photo check, and off we go. And again, this is to do with the standard, correct, that, that you must adhere to or that this, you're electing to, to adhere to? Well, it is, it is the internationally accepted standard for professional bodies that offer certification to individuals, which is different than a skills-based assessment. Um, and so that is part of a protocol accountants. You know, if people know certified accountants or chartered accountants, as the, a British term may be, um, they uphold certain standards for their certification programs. And one of those is to require a verification of a photo ID. <laughs> um, we don't ask people to submit their ID as an image and transmit it over the transom, like some verification processes do, which we think is a privacy issue. We're trying to allow an integration of the best possible options, not uh, not force people to travel and not force people to use a reader and a recorder um, as their only option. I don't find those to be acceptable. Does that help clarify the process? And I mean, if the gentleman from Netherlands had called and said, I don't want to go somewhere. I just want to take my exam. Can I take it on August the 1st? And I would say, yes, of course. Do you have someone you'd like to proctor and observe for you? Or, or do we need to facilitate that for you? And if he were to say, I need for you to facilitate for that for me, I would say, great, here's what we need to do. Let's test the system. Let me know what time your exam is you'd like to take and we'll get things set up. I'm wondering whether anything constructive might come out of all of this dialogue. I mean, I, I really have noticed it's one of those social media storms where tensions have run quite high and people are attributing motive, which I think there may be some misunderstanding here, but I think it's also important to be mindful on all sides of just how passionately people feel about accessibility. And if they feel an organization that should be exemplary is not, then one can understand why emotions are quite high. But I'm just wondering whether anything good might come of this in the sense that the NFB may well debate this if it gets past its resolutions committee. The NFB has a lot of influence. I wonder whether the NFB might be able to play a constructive role in partnership with IAAP in terms of uh, working on organizations like Criterion to speed all this up and remedy the accessibility issues. We were not invited to contribute to the resolution or be made aware of the content whatsoever. So uh, we have offered to lend our voice and our professionals and uh, and the influence that, that our members and supporting organizations offer. Uh, we have suggested that there be a coalition to work together. I just got off the phone with a colleague at one of these other very large technical certification programs, and she has convinced after a year and a half in her role, convinced her procurement team to say they are not going to renew their contract with you know, their test provider if accessibility is not up to WCAG 2.1. They're giving notice their contract doesn't renew for two more years. But if we want to hold people accountable, it should be everyone. And that means 
calling on a lot of our large entities that have far greater influence than we do. We would love to be perceived as the leader that everyone listens to, but we're not there yet. But we can represent to the best of our abilities the best practices we want people to pursue. You do consider, I take it, that IAAP has an advocacy role, though, correct? That it sort of sh- it should be out there, presumably shouting from the rooftops, what a horrible thing it is that here we are in 2020 and you're being put in this position because of third parties that you really don't have a lot of control over. I have been leading this discussion. I'm having this discussion with the Institute for Credentialing Excellence and our psychometrician partners are carrying this also to their partners. So. We are working on that, and it does put us in an unenviable role. But I, I, I believe that we would do far less benefit and far less progress if we were limited to how we can deliver content. So our efforts are to regularly meet with and hold, hold leadership roles within the Institute of Credentialing Excellence community, within the psychometric partner community, to push our vendor and to push other vendors along with the influencers who are starting to ask the questions now for the first time. How can we have a DEI statement and policy if our exams that we deliver to the millions every year are not accessible to someone who is blind, has a reading disability, has a learning disability, uses other tools and accessories you know, to access the digital world? And so we are working with our partners and colleagues to help move that needle through influence within the systems that are in place so that we can have the most impact collectively. And we would love to work with NFB to make that happen collectively for progress and benefit for everyone. It has a huge impact, doesn't it? Well beyond the topics that we're discussing. And I'm sitting here remembering something that I haven't really thought about for quite some time. And that was seven years ago, I was in line for another CEO role, which I ended up not getting. And they decided to do a battery of psychometric tests. And the only way that I was able to do them was to go through a reader that the recruiting agency provided. When you're in that position, you really don't want to rock the boat because if you say, look, I don't feel comfortable, the the way I would be able to engage with this best and respond best is if I could have this in some way engaging with my screen reader so I can think, review the question several times without having to ask someone to repeat it. I'm a Braille user, so just as some sighted people have photographic memories, things stay in my head if I'm reading from Braille. I felt that the process significantly disadvantaged me And yet, I didn't want to appear to be a pain in the butt by being difficult and pointing it out. So I suffered through this psychometric test, but really felt like I wasn't at my best. So, I mean, this is a very important issue. It could be standing in the way of the advancement of people with disabilities who who can't complete these things on their own as it stands right now. Well, there's... There's nothing that impedes someone's ability to take one of our accessible exams. Right. So we are hoping that as we do our other work, that that provides, and it is with the exception of whatever the technical offerings are from a test delivery partner, it's the same exam. And we are willing to make every accommodation request and time that's needed to meet the needs around the world. We have hundreds, more than 200 blind people have passed our CPAC exam and more than 80 have passed the web accessibility specialist exam. 
So we have blind people that are participating actively. What we hear back from candidates who are successful and when they come back and complete their feedback year over year is that they are able to take the information they learned in preparation and implement active changes towards inclusion in their organizations, in marketing and communications, in HR, in the built environment, in the physical space, in the technical world. They're learning how to have the information available to enable them to have the conversations to affect change as champions of accessibility in their organization and in a distributed model. And if we limit that opportunity, they're not mutually exclusive, in my opinion. I think that we can do both. I think that we can hammer the test delivery partners. We can work with our influencers in the field. We can get procurement officers to take it to heart and and be honest and real about what they will and won't select. But higher education relies on these test delivery partners. Corporations rely on them. Software suppliers rely on them. So we need to change the world for the better. And we believe that we are contributing to that while also making sure that people are not excluded from the opportunity to participate. Is there anything else before we close that you'd like to add on this topic? Which I hope that this discussion has been helpful and clarified exactly what the position is, irrespective of what people's opinion is, and those will obviously vary, but the facts, as I say, are important. Is there anything you wanted to add? Uh, we offer our programs. Our materials are open to the public. They are accessible. The exams are character by character the same, no matter which platform they're taken on. And we will do our work and our obligation to meet the needs of any candidate who'd like to pursue our programs. And if anyone is interested in helping us find ways to have greater influence in affecting the change towards accessibility in the test delivery and psychometric exam departments and world, we are happy to collaborate. And if we were invited to join such a coalition, we would be happy to do so. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Sam, and being so generous with your time and non-defensive with your answers. It's been a great discussion. I hope it's been helpful for you. It is. And thank you so much for providing us an opportunity to speak and and to engage with your audience. And I know that you're a very well-respected podcast and show and have heard wonderful things about you from the assistive tech world along with the accessibility world. Thank you so much. Mosin at Large Podcast. Gino J says your listener from the Netherlands discussed the issue with accessibility for the associated exams. I also have found that a program Google offers called Growing with Google, which helps individuals get training in technology, including assistive technology. The program is far cheaper than going to college, but after a friend of mine has opted to try it out, they found that the program was not accessible and the professors were unwilling to change the program. Fortunately, after a public post to Google, they did state that they were going to look into this and possibly offer free training for disabled participants, though the testing would obviously not be included. Now, Tim, who raised the question of the IAAP on last week's show, has sent in a reaction to the interview with Sam Evans, and he says, It is good to hear that a self-developed platform is being considered. I see no significant limitations to developing something within a reasonable budget which meets relevant ISO standards. Even better would be if a test delivery partner would commit to designing an accessible platform in a reasonable time. I think by not having an accessible platform, the test delivery partner violates Section 508. 
Provided the testing partner doesn't want to voluntarily commit to making their platform accessible, why doesn't the IAAP initiate a lawsuit against their testing provider to force them somehow referring to Section 508? I understand finding such a solution takes time, but in the meantime, the website should make clear that IAAP-provided online proctoring is the norm while there is the option of using a volunteer proctor for those who need slash want it. I think it is a great and valid option for people who, perhaps due to a psychological condition, cannot perform well if they are being watched by a stranger, but on the current website it comes across as if a volunteer proctor is the norm. A final thought, as long as there's no accessible online platform, there's a $325 exam fee. Maybe this could be partially waived if I provide a proctor, so I could compensate the proctor or IAAP compensates my proctor directly. This would avoid the problem that I'm dependent on the Good Samaritan attitude of my proctor or the employer-slash-partner who would provide the proctor in practice while IAAP is not burdened with proctoring every exam themselves, which I understand an organisation would rather delegate to a specialised exam provider. And while this podcast is being recorded, breaking news coming in from the National Federation of the Blinds Convention that the resolution on IAAP was passed with overwhelming support. If you want to read the full text of that resolution, you can go to NFB's website. And also, IAAP provided a rebuttal point by point to that resolution. So we will link to that in the show notes. Hey, Jonathan, this is Brandon. I just have a quick question for you and your audience. I own one of the early Focus displays that just has the cursor routing button rows and the whiz wheels. Um, And I'm just wondering, I want to hook it up to an iPhone. And the camera kit I bought is the USB 3 one. Now, I've established already that it doesn't work with the USB 3 camera. But what I'm wondering is, will iOS support... USB Braille devices, because I've heard that the USB 2 camera kit does support powered USB devices. And I'm just wondering, does the iPhone support USB Braille devices? Because that's all I have around. I'd like to get a Bluetooth Braille display, but not until I find a Bluetooth 5 device, because it's 20... 20 and Bluetooth 5 is two or three years old and uh, I just feel like I'm wasting my money if I buy anything else. So will iOS support my focus? And also totally agree with you on cursor routing buttons. I use them all the time when I'm editing text using Braille devices. So yeah, I don't think I could I could live on a device that didn't have cursor routing buttons. Love the show. Oh, thank you very much, Brandon. Nice to hear from you. Sadly, the answer appears to be no. This came up on the show a week or two ago because I do recall briefly, and I don't remember whether it was in a beta of iOS a long time ago or whether it was in iOS briefly, but there was at one point an option in the Braille settings of VoiceOver for connecting to a USB Braille display, and then it disappeared. So it appears that it was problematic, and Apple have taken it out. So I don't think there is a way 
to get the focus display you have working with your iPhone. I'd be interested in learning about the benefit that you perceive in hanging out for a Bluetooth 5 Braille display. I suppose one benefit would be that it could report the battery percentage to your iPhone and you'd be able to see it in the battery widget. But most Braille displays have a really easy way of accessing the battery percentage remaining anyway. And let's keep in mind that sending Braille is really low bandwidth. You don't need a lot of grunt to do it. So I guess for me anyway, Bluetooth 5 would not be a showstopper in terms of waiting to upgrade my display. Now, here's an email from Vaughan Rolls in Australia. He says, hi, Jonathan, I am most interested in your discussion about reading Braille, particularly reading Braille from a Braille display and reading it in public. I work as a criminal lawyer, appearing in court at least three days a week. I have never managed to master reading Braille in this context from a Braille display. I tend to put my questions for the witnesses into Braille, along with the brief of evidence. I am terrified that the computer may fail, so always emboss into hard copy Braille. I admire very much your tenacity in being able to read with a Braille display consistently. Have you ever had the situation where you have gone to start a presentation and the Bluetooth has not connected or the computer failed? Do you have a backup plan? How do you get around these scenarios? Enjoy the show very much, he says, but usually listen on the podcast. Thanks so much, Vaughan. Oh, yes. I only have one example of this, and funnily enough, it actually happened in Australia. Australia's truth. It was stressful. This was when I was speaking at the Blind Citizens Australia Convention, and I think that was 2017 when I was doing this. And ironically enough, I was having a little chat about bugs in Apple's technology and how it really disadvantaged us. And that was just after uh, a version of iOS had been released that had some really buggy Braille issues. And I was being introduced. And I realized that somehow my pairing had been lost between my iPhone and my Braille display. I have to say, with the focus displays, that happens to me very infrequently, especially when Apple Braille is behaving itself or when VoiceOver is behaving itself. But this intro was going on, and of course, I tried toggling VoiceOver on and off. I tried switching the Braille display off and back on and then toggling VoiceOver back on and off again. I then tried toggling airplane mode off and back on to toggle the Bluetooth, all the while knowing that the seconds were ticking by and this introduction was about to finish and I was going to be high and dry without my speech, without my prepared remarks. And then I had a decision to make in split second timing. Do I lean over to the person introducing me and say, stop, please go to someone else because I've got a technology snafu here. And then I thought, oh, man, that's just so embarrassing and so disruptive. So what was my plan B? My plan B was just to get up there and wing it. And when I published my remarks afterwards on my blog, I told the story and I said, this is actually the text of my formal remarks, which I did not deliver because I had a major technology crash. And people said, wow, I had no idea that you had that problem. I just got up there and did my stuff and said what I had to say and kept going. Now, I realize that in a situation like the one you were describing, that is not at all ideal. But to be honest with you, 
are we really that much different from anyone else these days? I imagine a lot of people in a profession like yours, like the law, will be coming in with questions written on a device of some kind, a tablet, a laptop, something like that. And sometimes they will fail. And sometimes the lawyer, I imagine, will say, Your Honor, I just have to reboot. I do apologize to the court. And I think that's a lot more acceptable these days. Hey, Jonathan, it's Maria. I, too, use the Focus 40 Blue 5th generation, and I quite like its variety of navigation commands. There's so much I can do on the display, especially on iOS, but even certain PC commands that I frequently use that have the single step of them, if you will, available. Um, there's so much I can do without removing my hands from the display, which is so nice, you know, on iOS, scrolling and um, activating items and uh, the, the back button and magic tap and... Uh, the flicking in all directions and such between the navigational commands. So that's really nice. I also do like the positioning of the space bar. Um, I like that it's below the cells. I used PacMate before and I remember having to kind of scrunch my thumb underneath to reach the space bar. It was quite uncomfortable. I do like the Braille keyboard. Um, I, I see where the appeal would be with the QWERTY of not having to learn input commands. But, um, you know, I think, yes, it is a learning curve, but I actually like it in that it both changes up my input style throughout the day if I want to switch between the display and then my, the QWERTY keyboard on my laptop. Um, but also in terms of some of the commands that use so many modifiers and you have to kind of contort your fingers for certain commands, um, it's nice with the Braille keyboard, you know, I'm able to keep my hands in a pretty consistent position no matter what the keyboard uh, command is because I'm just emulating the modifier keys uh, to perform the commands. So I do quite like that. And I also like that I can switch between the multiple uh, simultaneous connections with a hotkey. I've read, at least uh, when I read them with some of the other Braille display manuals, it looked like you maybe needed to go into connections menu, which, I mean, you can do with the focus, but it's nice to have those hotkeys. And I like that Vispero has the exchange program, at least in the U.S., that if your unit's under warranty or PMA, and if they have inventory in stock, they'll send you a replacement so you don't have to wait for your unit to be repaired and come back to you. Um, so I definitely, I read a lot with Braille display. I think the last time I read something in hard copy was uh, a bylaws amendment at last year's uh, ACB convention since I had no other electronic format choice, but I definitely prefer the uh, reading with a braille display. And I think the speed of it definitely has just come for me with practice, um, doing it over and over again. I, I have done presentations and such reading it, and so I've gotten um, faster with, with practice. In terms of text-to-speech, I've quite come to prefer the natural or the more concatenated voices. I do like the Ivona ones, actually. I do use them at fast Faster than the default speed. I don't remember how quickly now, but I do use them in Voice Dream Reader and sometimes on my PC also, and they seem to work quite well for me. I have several of them in both of those programs. Uh, nowadays, you can get the Sappy 5 versions of them for Windows from uh, Harpo Software, H-A-R-P-O Software.com and also NextUp.com sells them. Um, I find them to be quite pleasant, and I guess I do kind of like a bit more of the performance <laughs> aspect when reading something, um, which I do tend to like audiobooks and such as well. Um, and uh, actually, that reminds me with the audio. I think I know. I don't know for sure. So I don't want to say the name, but I actually, this one audiobook narrator, I recognized when I heard her voice, the first thing I thought to myself was that really sounds like the Ivona uh, Indian English female voice. So it, it 
could be this person who knows but it's interesting to uh, when you find out who the people are actually behind these voices um and i actually think the siri i i tried that one out just i was curious what it sounded like and it really sounded so similar to that ivona one so i wonder if they are using um a similar voice but it is definitely such a personal thing i do use the uh vocalizer uh voices i have ava primarily but i also do use zoe when i want to change it up and i don't tend to switch so much based on the app um either pc or um ios and um in terms oh nuance actually i just found out last week from next up the the people i just mentioned who sell the voices um and and this also they sell this text allowed software for converting stuff to audio files but they say that nuance has now apparently spun off their text to speech uh company the part of it and i think it's called serence like c-e-r-e-n-c-e and so i guess there are now new versions of these voices so it'll be interesting to see if jaws uh you know incorporates them at some point or um i should I, i'm kind of tempted to go on to their website and see what it is if it's you know a sappy five or is it text allowed only or um you know and kind of see what they sound like i'm guessing it's kind of incremental at this point but um It'll be interesting to see. It seems like with every iOS update, for sure, you hear little uh, differences in the text-to-speech. So they are uh, definitely developing things and moving forward. Sunel Pick says, Hi, Jonathan. Another great show. Read Daniel. Daniel, TTS, the voice of John Briggs. There's an interesting podcast where he talks about his career and ending up as Daniel. It's the first in Tales from the Tannoy, where the voice of the London Underground and trams in Birmingham interviews the people who you hear doing the announcements in supermarkets, sat-navs, and adverts. That's a really cool idea for a podcast. Well worth a listen. Mosin at Large Podcast! Jonathan, it's Tanya Harrison here. Um, I think that it's an amazing conversation that you've been having this week, um, in particular with Bonnie, about blind people being lumped in, so to speak, with people with lesser capabilities, so to speak. I just had to jump in because, for me, I felt that I saw a trend going on in our school, and that was you were either blind and the words that they use quite regularly, slow, or you are blind and, in quotes, intelligent. And for me personally, I found that to be quite insulting um, because I found that some blind people that were, in quotes, slow, had quite a lot of brains. However, the boat that I felt that I was in was from a very young age. I knew that there were other things wrong with me maybe in a sense mentally, maybe not intellectually. But I felt that there were things that were happening to me that weren't happening to other people. And because I was, you know, compared to what some people said in my class, intelligent, I was lumped into the bracket of those who were meant to, again in quotes, succeed. And for me, that was very hard because I could sense there were a lot of ways that I reacted to things that weren't quite normal. And that's a word that got used a lot at our school as well. So I think that, you know, there was a problem back then where the teachers, and maybe not just teachers, maybe social workers, would lump us in to different categories. And we had to fit into a certain box in order for them 
to be able to deal with us in the right ways. And if you were, you know, blind and you read a lot, you were supposed to be intelligent. Um, you were supposed to be able to go to university. You were supposed to reach a certain standard. If you were blind and slow, you were meant to sit at the bottom of the pile. And if there was something else wrong with you, that was quite normal because you already had a lot of problems besides your blindness. But heaven forbid you were actually blind and, in the words they would use, brainy, and you had other things that were not right with you, that was quite troublesome for me. It meant to a condition that I had not been diagnosed until I was 31, for example, because for years I was compared to other blind people. Now, why why do you react to this, you know, when so-and-so doesn't? Because I had other physiolo- phys- sorry, physiological things that weren't in the normal category. And, you know, that's what I felt, um, Jonathan, came from what you and Bonnie saying. The other thing I noticed is that, unfortunately, with that happening to all of us as children and teenagers, us as a blind community can be very judgmental towards each other. For example, someone might be trying to empathize with someone else because two people agree with something that to some others who may have had more advantages from what we can see are embarrassed by that. I feel that it's something that is very hard to understand when we've all had such different circumstances. And I think that at the end of the day, what it comes down to is as blind people, we are just ourselves. Yes, we're blind, but we are ourselves doing our bit in society. And I think that for all of us, a big takeout message is just to accept each other as we are and to know that in some way we're all just trying to make the best of our lives despite what may or may not have happened for us. Hi Jonathan, regarding the use of the word blind. As long as we've got so much trash in our backyard in the sense of organizations and professionals implying that blind people can do little more than ask for help and gratefully accept it, the idiom that people use isn't going to make much difference, which is what I mean by it's a bit academic. But I guess we differ in view there, which is okay. Last week's discussion, and especially the guy who told how as a child he was almost sent to a school for the mentally impaired got me thinking about the link that some people may make between blindness and mental impairment. And I realized that this is a link which I haven't encountered so often in my life. I've been deliberately excluded, a teacher organizing activities that I couldn't participate in seemingly to get rid of me from the classroom, In my mother's book, she describes how she was told, oh, why don't you let that poor toddler sleep enough? Because I was sitting in the buggy with my eyes closed, listening to my environment. So people thought I was just sleeping. Correcting people's incorrect perception of blind people is a full-time job, in my case, almost literally, because that's a lot of what you have to do in accessibility. 
But I can think of only two instances where people made the link between blindness and mental issues. The first one is again from my mother's book where a family was going to babysit me and they called my mother, oh, we can't babysit this kid because my husband doesn't want to sit at the same table as a blind child. And my mother describes in that book how in her head that guy dropped very painfully on his face over some banana wrappings. And the second one was a bully when I was around 14. He suggested that a monkey had better survival opportunities in nature than me because I was blind, which if a bully puts it to you like that, it's very offensive. And I really defended myself. But those are the only things that come to mind. And in both cases, we really defended ourselves. I was not raised to accept that in any form. My parents and other people around me were always very active and supportive and expected a lot of me. I can understand that if you were raised in an environment where that link between blindness and some sort of mental deficit was far more prominent and where even many people implicitly accepted that link. I mean, not all parents have the strength or ability to go against implications by professionals and people around them. That you would be more sensitive to use of the word blind in certain uh, idioms. In the 1970s, obviously, the perception that blind people were dumb somehow was far more widespread and accepted than it is today. It's even possible, but that's pure speculation, that in the Netherlands that perception is less widespread than in some other countries. I have no idea if that's true or false, but what I do think of from a historical context in the Second World War, the Germans and many Dutch people collaborated with the Germans, dealt with impaired people in a very awful manner. And therefore, the trauma of the war might cause us to be less acceptance of portraying impaired people as somehow less valuable. If you do something like that, you are called a Nazi. And it's very sensitive here, perhaps more sensitive than... It would be in the US where they haven't experienced the war and the extreme consequences of eugenics and that sort of stuff. But again, this is total uh, speculation and just food for thought. Dawn Davis is in Sydney and she says, I would like to share my childhood story with you. I was born in Lismore on the north coast of New South Wales. In the late 50s, there was no support for the parents of disabled children. And when I was taken to a specialist, he measured my head and told my parents that I was retarded and that I would never walk or talk. Luckily, I was the youngest of four children, and my parents knew from experience that I was normal, except that I did not appear to look at things or reach for things. I have to say that I shudder to think what might have happened had my parents taken the doctor's advice and put me in an institution. As it was, I went to North Rocks School, where I received a good education. However, for a lot of the students, they were classed as being retarded and were educated as such, which meant that they were not expected to achieve 
a high level of education of any sort. I know many of these children have grown to be intelligent and well-educated members of society, though they have had to struggle hard against the expectations that were forced on them through their life. I feel there is much to learn from these people, so we may never make these kinds of mistakes again. Email from K. Scott Carlson, who says, I wanted to talk about several things that have come up on podcasts over recent weeks. One, my favorite TTS voices are Reed from Eloquence and Samantha on iOS. Man, I, whenever I hear Samantha, I always think she sounds so angry. You know, she just sounds like you wouldn't want to argue with this person. Anyway, uh, the email continues. This is because... They are the ones I started with, and by far, the fastest I can understand. With Samantha, I can understand at least 650 words per minute. Dude, I can't do this with any other iOS voice, let alone Acapella or the premium voices in Voice Dream Reader. I think some of the new Windows One Core voices might be a good replacement if I'm forced to upgrade NVDA and Eloquence becomes unavailable to me at home. Two, my favorite Bluetooth keyboard is the Anker Ultra Slim wireless keyboard. It's not fancy, but it is extremely portable and just works. The price is especially reasonable. It doesn't come with a case, but it's not hard to find ones that can be purchased separately. Three, you've mentioned that after iOS 13, the native Reminders app replaced most of your task managing apps. Are there good resources that explain how the new version works? There probably are. I'm not really aware of any. I just kind of played with it and got it to work. But a very good resource for these sorts of things is often a site called Mac Stories, even though it has Mac in the name. There's an awful lot of really good iOS material there. And whenever a new version of iOS comes out, they do a massive look at the new features in iOS. And I do believe they had quite a bit on the Reminders app in iOS 13. So that iOS 13 review will be lurking about somewhere at MacStories, or one word, dot net, MacStories.net. Four, regarding Markdown editors, I found the little free one called Pretext. It seems quite basic, but it does integrate with the Files app and has HTML previewing. So if a subscription or the $30 IA writer is too much, this one could be worth checking out. It supposedly has keyboard shortcuts, but there's no list anywhere online I can find. And the great state of Ohio goes to Thomas Sorek. Oh, it was always a very close-run thing, but he's one Ohio. <laughs> he says, greetings from Ohio, Jonathan. Your faithful reporting of your recent Sonos and Smart TV upgrade process inspired me to make similar moves. I have been awaiting the Sonos arc for the exact reasons you shared with us several weeks ago. Perhaps I should now gift my Sonos playback and beam to a deserving employee, as you often give your previous technology hardware to your children. Well, you could give the Sonos gear to my children if you want, Thomas. <laughs> They'd probably take it off your hands. I received my pre-order of the Sonos Arc in late June, and when paired with my two existing Play 5s and Sonos Sub, the Arc absolutely rocks as advertised. 
the integrated soup drinker and Google Assistant are welcome bonuses. Now, regarding the TV ordeal, I appreciate that you communicated the fundamental shortcomings to Sony concerning the screen reader becoming unusable when connected through the iARC port. Since my wife, who was sighted, was still barely insistent on the Sony LED picture offerings, I knowingly purchased a 65-inch premium Sony Smart TV with my eyes figuratively wide open, even after listening to your account of your own exchange to the Samsung TV for working accessibility. I jokingly told my wife that maybe I should just exchange her instead to get the Samsung Smart TV for the best screen reading experience. But this suggestion was not well received at all. You're funny that, Thomas. So we remain with the most advanced 2020 Sony model currently with no speech when connected to Sonos. Happy wife, happy life, right? I understand the visual effects are indeed stunning for my wife and my 4.5-year-old little fellow. If I recall correctly, Sony did reply to you and committed to investigating this unacceptable bug. What do you think would be the best way for me and other Sony Smart TV owners to stay tuned to ascertain when Sony corrects this accessibility bug and releases subsequent firmware? Even though I knowingly made this decision, I look to the day when Sony will release such an update enabling simultaneous screen reading and iARC port usage in the future. I suppose I could always keep trying to turn on and test the screen reader every time a firmware update is delivered, but that seems tedious. Congratulations on your podcast hosting upgrades this month. I am grateful that there is now no limit on the archival of your singular and invaluable work on behalf of the global blind community. It just keeps getting better. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, thank you, Thomas, for your very generous comments. I was going to suggest the solution that you offered. Basically, just try it and see. You could try and lodge your own tech support request with Sony, because I have to say, once I said to Sony, sorry, guys, I'm not waiting around for you guys to fix this. I mean, unlike you, we're a two-blind adult household, and that was ridiculous. So I just told them, you lost a sale. I'm sending it back. So now I'm not really engaging with them anymore. Does your wife seriously believe? I mean, I'm not doubting her, but is the quality of some of those really nice Samsung 8K TVs that I hear about vastly inferior to what Sony's offering? Is it really? I mean, have you actually encouraged her to go and watch the two side by side? And has she told you she can really see a discernible difference? I mean, I would encourage everybody to contact Sony about this because even if you don't need Dolby Atmos now or some of the other technologies available in the eARC port, you're going to one day and it is just crazy. There seems no logic whatsoever to me behind this limitation. So I'd encourage you to lodge your own tech support inquiry, Thomas, and just keep at them until it's fixed. Let us know how you get on. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin.